Today I will be talking again about fatty liver. Um, I am a gastroenterologist, as he said. What he didn't say is that I'm temporarily in charge of the <laughs> This is not a permanent thing, we're hoping. Um, but um, uh, nevertheless, uh, this is a common condition. It is a disease of endocrinology, um, not GI, even though we see these patients. Um, actually, as you know, it's the most common reason now that we see patients in our liver clinic. Number one reason for referral in the next five years will probably become the number one reason for liver transplant um, is hepatitis C, you know, is going down. Um, as we can screen for that, is, that's currently the number one indication. And that may remain that way probably for the next five to ten years, but after that, certainly this disease is going to supplant that um, as the number one reason for liver transplant. And as I said a couple days ago, a lot of my patients um, would come in and ask me if I'd seen this movie. And, hadn't, and so I had rented the DB a few years, a couple years after it came out, and, and again, it wasn't a very good movie, but I did learn from it, um, and, that, and again, as I said, what I didn't appreciate, actually, until I saw this movie, or the potential importance of this, is how dynamic the fat um, can change in the liver, and, you know, this, the one, the set of liver function tests that they showed in this movie was actually 12 days after he started the McDonald's diet, and it was remarkable how quickly his liver function tests uh, became elevated. You can see his AST went up to over 100 and his ALT went up to 250 um, in just two weeks. And uh, so this was a pretty dramatic change. And as you probably, if you saw the movie, uh, even his cholesterol change, which we typically don't think is being that dynamic. Um, but it also went up dramatically within just two weeks of eating this diet. Um, and maybe he's a hyper responder to diet, maybe not. Um, but nevertheless, it, did impress upon me about how quickly this can change and actually also be reversed, potentially. Um, and as you know, he ended up having to stop the diet, actually, on the recommendation of the doctor because of his liver, not because of <laughs> how much weight he had actually gained. Uh, but they didn't show the liver function test at the end of 30 days, so I don't know what happened. But I assume they didn't get better. They must have gone up because they made him stop the diet. But it is a dynamic process. And this, actually, I hadn't appreciated until I saw the, the actual movie. Um, so uh, this is a spectrum of disease. Uh, we think that uh, the histology shown on your lower left, is, which is just fat accumulations, glands, steatosis, a lot of times it's called, um, you see the white droplets, is not necessarily uh, a disease or not necessarily going to lead to disease. Um, but what we do know is that, and we think we know at least, uh, is that this is a precursor to the more serious form of the condition uh, which is shown in your upper right-hand corner. We start to see cells dying. You see ballooning degeneration. You see this white or the red accumulation, Mallory Highland, uh, which we also see in alcoholic liver disease, um, and that's thus its name um, because it was noted on the histology to be very similar to what happens when people drink alcohol. Uh, and then the more severe form of the disease, shown in your lower right, uh, where you have inflammation, you have fibrosis, uh, ultimately can lead to <coughs> cirrhosis and liver failure. Fortunately, not everyone has that has fat accumulation in their liver. Steatosis goes on to develop the more serious form of the, the disease. And the prevalence of this, again, was largely established by Helen Hobbs and a fellow of mine at the time, Jeff Browning, where they looked in the Dallas Heart Study. Uh, again, this data is old, so I'll, I'll go through it fairly quickly. But uh, one of the components of the Dallas Heart Study, which included about 3,500 individuals randomly chosen from Dallas County, except that 50% were African-American, 
Uh, they agreed to become a human biology laboratory, essentially, donated DNA, and participated in a lot of studies, one of which was NMR of their liver. And this is still the largest uh, study to date that I'm aware of, um, looking at the prevalence of this condition in a large population um, using a method that's quantitative. <coughs> and as you know, <coughs> magnetic resonance um, is the most quantitative way we have to, um, to estimate the amount of liver fat content. However, uh, I mean, any modality actually works pretty well. Um, it's just not as quantitative. You can pick this up easily by sonogram. Usually that's how patients get referred to us. Um, CT scans certainly can also tell you if there's excess fat. Um, it's just not as quantitative. But they're still reasonably um, sensitive and specific. And so this isn't necessarily required. I don't think it will necessarily need to be used clinically other than in a research setting. Um, it does take a little bit longer. Um, and <laughs> using this technique, looking at the peaks, um, the water peak versus the amount of fat peak, um, you can determine the percent fat. And this is just an example of tracing of somebody that has relatively normal fat content in their liver. This is somebody that has hepatic steatosis. And using this data, again, because this was a large population, um, we were, <coughs> they were able to um, establish what a normal fat content might be based on uh, the distribution uh, in this particular population. And again, um, so out of the 3,500 or so, actually only about 2,300 ended up going into the magnet for a variety of reasons. You know, some are claustrophobic, some are too fat, um, some you know, just refused. So there's about 2,300 that ended up participating. Of that 2,300 or so, um, they, we can go in and look to make sure that there's no other ancillary diseases. Um, tried to identify those individuals that were as normal as what could be obtained um, from the information that was obtained in the Dallas Heart Study. So they had extensive questionnaires, knew their medication, you know, surgical histories, et cetera, et cetera, had their BMIs, they had DEXA scans done, et cetera. So they chose out of those individuals people that they could consider normal on no meds. And out of the 2,500, there was only this many left um, that could be considered normal, but that was what then they used and could use to establish what a normal potentially a normal value might be for liver fat content. And using the distribution of these uh, people that to the best of our ability we appeared to be normal, um, we could establish, again, using the typical cutoffs that we use in medicine, 95th percentile, and this number is still used for the most part today as being 5.5% uh, as being the cutoff between normal and abnormal. Um, and this correlates to about 56 milligrams of triglycerides per gram. And we can, do this pretty accurately with the techniques that we use. And for those of you who study animals, um, you would think that that's actually a fatty liver um, because normal mice, at least in hamsters and rats, they have a value generally less than 20 milligrams per gram on a normal diet. And so one concern that I think all of us have uh, with this data is that we may be making the same mistake uh, with liver fat that we made with plasma cholesterol 30 years ago where we're using the wrong population, even though we consider these people normal, um, maybe they aren't as normal as we think they are, uh, much like what we did with cholesterol and using the Western population to establish normal values. I suspect this value is too high. And um, <clears throat> data from Jerry Shulman um, using a much more restrictive criteria suggests normal liver fat probably should be considered to be less than 2, um, 2 percent. But nevertheless, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, so is, were there I mean, there are, yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, the ethnic differences, uh, 
it, it turns out it's not going to be on the topic of my talk. So you should have um, Helen come back and tell you about that, Helen Hobbs. And so these are the ethnic differences that he's bringing up. And this was actually first, again, Jeff was a fellow at the time, now we have him on faculty, Browning. But he noted this in the clinic first when he was a fellow. And the demographics of our public hospital, Parkland, has changed dramatically during my time there, for sure. Where initially about 60% of our patients were African-American, now that's shifted to be about 60% Hispanic origin. And he noted that with this shift, he happened to be there during this time, um, that there was more and more uh, Hispanic individuals coming in that had cryptogenic cirrhosis, meaning cirrhosis where they had no infectious etiology. And he actually reported this first, um, just as an observational type study from Parkland, uh, where there was a disproportionate number of Hispanics coming in with cryptogenic cirrhosis. This bore out to be true when it comes to liver fat in the Dallas Heart Study as well. And you can see uh, the prevalence of hepatic steatosis in the three major ethnic groups represented in the Dallas Heart Study. African Americans, it turns out, to, and again, he reported this as well initially, tend to be protected from fat accumulation. Um, and Hispanics are disproportionately affected by um, hepatic steatosis. And this is a distribution of the entire Dallas Heart Study. So why is this? Um, we actually learned a lot. Helen Hobbs did a GWAS, and again, this isn't the topic of my talk today, but she did a GWAS, identified a single gene, a polymorphism in a gene called PNPLA3, which is, I think is a lipase, although that's been a bit difficult to be confident that that is it is only function. And it turns out <coughs> this polymorphism that affects, uh, is present in the Hispanic gene pool. About 49% of Hispanics carry um, this, if you want to call it a mutant, you can, a mutant allele. And thus, and it's very, it's more rare in the African-American population, only about 18% or so carry this allele. And so this actually explains probably about 80% of the variation, uh, ethnic variation that's found between African-Americans and, and Hispanics. Um, as far as their propensity to develop liver fat. Now, the exciting thing about this discovery is um, it's the first gene that's actually been associated with disease progression. And uh, it's our first real handle on uh, trying to identify what happens because, as you'll see, as you see here, roughly 33% or a third of the population has a fatty liver. Fortunately, not a third of the population is going to develop liver failure. It's still a large proportion. Um, but um, the numbers start to dwindle a bit. So if you take the US, current U.S. population, 33%, again, it's probably a little lower in New York, but otherwise Dallas probably represents the rest of the country. So probably a third of individuals have fat, excess fat accumulations. That's about 103 million. Fortunately, only about 20% of the 33% will go on to develop inflammation <coughs> and steatohepatitis. So based on our current best estimates, so that's about 20 million. And then of the somewhere between 10 and 20 percent um, could be predicted to go on to develop cirrhosis. So, um, so the number is still very large, um, but fortunately, it's not near as large as as a starting number. However, um, PNPLA3 uh, is again the only dis gene that we've identified or that has been identified thus far that's associated with disease progression. So, if you carry this allele, your chances of developing the more severe form of the disease is much greater. And it turns out not only in this condition, but also in alcohol. So your odds ratio, there's a large study from Mexico. Uh, it looks like it's about five um, for developing actual cirrhosis. And so, as you know, for individuals that, um, yes? We have a lot of student background. Oh, sorry, okay, I'll talk louder, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so as you know, for individuals that, uh, 
drink alcohol, or we, at least we think that they drink enough to develop cirrhosis, only about 10% to 20% actually develop disease, much like what we see in fatty liver disease. And, uh, and, and so it looks like PNPLA3 is also a risk factor for the progression of that disease. Hepatitis C, possibly, uh, it's maybe a little bit less clear, um, but that needs further flushed out. But, um, but in both conditions, this polymorphism appears to be associated with disease progression. The next challenge is gonna be figure out exactly what the gene does, how the polymorphism affects its function, and then how it ultimately um, affects disease progression. But those are all stories that are underway and, and are a long ways from actually being sorted out. So, but have Helen come tell you about them. Um, she's, Helen Hobbs my neighbor, she's, uh, and she would give a great talk about that. Um, so liver function tests, unfortunately, uh, and we looked in the Dallas Heart Study as well, but this was known previously as well. Um, if you have an abnormal liver function test, you rule out all your other infectious causes, your chances of having a more severe form of fatty liver on your biopsy is greater if your ALT is higher. However, the converse is not true. So you can have perfectly normal liver function tests but have a horrible biopsy. And so, um, and so they aren't that useful, actually. Um, the specificity is high, sensitivity is low. Um, and again, we don't have a lot of data about progression um, because it does require liver biopsies. And that's what's really holding up research in this field in general, is that we have no good non-invasive way to follow this disease uh, without an actual liver biopsy. And so the, probably the total number of people in the literature still is less than 1,500 that have had serial biopsies. And the, the duration between the biopsies varies tremendously um, and not that long. Oops. Um, so this is one of the larger studies. Um, but again, it's fairly old now, 2005. Um, but you can see the interval between biopsies is about two, 3.2 years. This is from Mayo. Uh, range was 7.7 7 to 21 years. And in general, a lot of the studies show kind of the same thing. About a third will spontaneously improve. About a third will remain unchanged. A third will progress. And then a certain percentage will go on to develop cirrhosis. And, um, you know, the, the really concerning part is this. Um, because a third... Um, spontaneously improve. So that means that you have to have a pretty large cohort and a large control group for any study. And it also raises the issue of the liver biopsy. You know, how accurate is the liver biopsy? Because obviously there's sampling here uh, with the liver biopsy. You can only do so many passes. And, um, and is that really improvement or is it just that we missed a more severe part? That's why we have such a great need ultimately clinically to have a non-invasive way to actually follow this disease. And again, this isn't new data, but this is from the Dallas Heart Study. Multiple people have shown this previously. As I said, this is a disease of endocrinology. I think you do have to have insulin resistance in some form to develop significant fatty liver disease. And that, of course, is associated with BMI and insulin resistance. So this is the home IR and BMI. These are superimposable data. It's not perfect, but you can see that the correlation is fairly good. But there is a lot of scatter around these lines, without a doubt. Um, but nevertheless, our bias for sure is that we need to have, that you must have some form of insulin resistance, at least in the liver, um, for the most part to develop fatty liver. And the term insulin resistance, as you know, is probably unfortunate when it comes to the liver um, because the liver behaves a little bit differently potentially than other tissues. It does, it is resistant to the action of insulin when it comes to glucose. This is a recent study from Jeff Browning again and, and Sean Burgess at Southwestern using stable isotopes to measure flux through various metabolic pathways. And they showed that individuals that had high liver fat content um, had higher rates of gluconeogenesis, higher output from, this was again, largely known. Um, 
previously, and this was just a more quantitative way of looking at this in humans and associated with flux through this pathway. So the, even the, so the individuals with fatty liver have higher gluconeogenesis, have higher glucose output, again, consistent with insulin resistance. Um, but unfortunately, when it comes to um, fat synthesis, it appears the liver does not remain or does not develop resistance to the action of insulin. And so why does it accumulate? There's many reasons, and again, this is a fairly simple equation, and again, I apologize for those who study this because you've probably seen or heard this a million times, but we have genetic examples of each of these problems, so either you make too much, you don't secrete it, you take up too much, or you don't burn it, so that's very simple. And, um, and we have genetic examples of where each of these individually can cause a fatty liver, without a doubt. And so any, any one of these can be singly altered, and that can lead to fat accumulation. There's obviously genetic defects in fat oxidation. Those individuals do get a fatty liver. To my knowledge, though, there hasn't been actually a report of the individual going on to develop liver failure from those particular mutations. Um, but nevertheless, they do get a fatty liver. Certainly, we know blocks in secretion, ApoB mutations, A-beta, hypo-beta, where there's MTP deficiency, those individuals get a fatty liver. There are examples in the literature of those individuals going on to liver failure. I know for a fact there's a 14-year-old that had MTP deficiency that had to have a liver transplant. But again, not everybody goes on to develop disease. Um, and then free fatty acid uptake is <clears throat> multiple people have shown is a large contributor to fat accumulation within the liver. And then the contribution of lipogenesis or fat synthesis is what we focused on a lot. And what the remainder of my talk will be on um, is a potential role for higher rates of fat synthesis. And again, this grew out of work related to this set of transcription factors um, that activate all of the enzymes involved in fat synthesis. Uh, it turns out insulin activates this transcription factor, which then activates all these enzymes required to make fatty acids and triglycerides. And so when an individual develops hyper or insulin resistance, insulin can go up. And as I said, the liver, unlike when it comes to glucose metabolism, the liver behaves a little bit differently. It appears it continues to stimulate this pathway, at least in rodents for sure, um, to activate fat synthesis. And again, um, so this is just a summary of, again, this is old information for most of you. The SRBP1 isoform, these are cloned by Brown and Goldstein in the early 90s, um, looking for the transcription factors that regulated cholesterol and fat metabolism. SRBP1 regulates all those enzymes required to make uh, fat, and SRBP2, the second isoform, regulates all of the enzymes to make a cholesterol molecule, it regulates the LD receptor, and also the protein PCSK9 that I talked about yesterday. And, of course, they were after this transcription factor. This one fell out as a result of <coughs> their attempts to clone this one. Um, and you can see that when these transcription factors are overexpressed in liver, they do develop accumulation of lipid. Again, independent of insulin resistance, so just purely driving fat synthesis can cause a fatty liver, and driving cholesterol synthesis alone uh, results in cholesterol accumulation in the liver. And so once that was determined, it was the obvious question was, did this play a role in fatty liver disease? And so a simple experiment was simply to measure the amount of SRBP1 in the livers of diabetic animals that had fatty livers, and the OVOB mouse most of you are familiar with. We've, ever, we've um, looked at probably now I think we've up to about 18 different animal models, and not all of them have this, but all of them except one in our case, and I think that I heard about another one in, in my visit here. So there's a couple where you don't activate this transcription factor, but it's not common. Most of the, foreman, most of the common forms of animal models, at least with insulin resistance, 
um, have higher levels of this transcription factor, SRVP1, and higher rates of fat synthesis. As shown here, um, this was a treated water study where we measured fat synthesis in vivo, and this is just the triglyceride accumulation. And you can see that the OBOB animals have higher rates of fat synthesis as a result of activating this transcription factor, and they also have higher rates or amounts of triglycerides. And so um, <coughs> this was all consistent, and, um, and it does appear, as I said, in almost all animal models, there are ways to activate fat synthesis, in, fat synthesis independent of SREBP1. There's at least two other transcription factors that can do this, and other mechanisms probably exist. Um, but it does, at least in rodent models, appear to be an important contributor, at least, to the development of fatty liver. Some data exists in humans as well, um, because there, you know, the initial constant, uh, concern was that the absolute rate of fat synthesis in a rodent is much, much higher probably than what is found in humans, and does this really play any significant role in humans? And I think the jury may still be out. However, there is data that at least suggests higher rates of fat synthesis in the liver, quantitative amount, I think one could actually argue. Um, this is the, one of the first studies to try to measure fat synthesis in the humans with fatty liver disease, and again, they found a higher rate of fat synthesis. The larger study has been done by Elizabeth Parks, it was now at Southwestern, and she did this actually when she was at Minnesota using stable isotopes as well, and has shown that uh, individuals with fatty liver do have higher rates of fat synthesis as well. So um, the absolute rates, however, are, are probably less. She estimates the contribution of <coughs> de novo lipogenesis or endogenous fat synthesis to fatty liver disease in most individuals as being somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, I think. But still the majority of the fat comes from the periphery. Um, the potential, um, this is just a, a picture to demonstrate how powerful insulin can be. And so this is a, a, a NMR of an uh, individual who attained a beta cell transplant, um, which, you know, they're injected into the liver. And uh, you can actually follow the life of a beta cell in the liver by the dark circles because they secrete insulin, causes the fat to accumulate around the beta cells. And you can see then each of the little beta cells making insulin because they cause a local fatty liver. Um, there is a report actually of <coughs> acute liver failure after beta cell transplant um, from presumably excess fat. Um, and you can actually follow their, their life cycle because once they die, um, those dark circles then go away. So most of our work is focused on trying to determine whether and how this this component, lipogenesis, um, actually contributes to fatty liver and whether altering this pathway may be a benefit or not in thinking about potential therapeutic options down the road. And one of the ways we've, we've done that is just to focus on the characterization of novel genes that we've identified through arrays, looking at multiple fatty liver models, including the SRVP, overexpressing mice and mice that lack scan. And, and um, the first one I'll talk about briefly, I talked about a couple days ago, is this one called MIG-12. Um, it's regulated, it, it's, its expression is high in every fatty liver model we've identified and studied. And when we started working with it, its particular function, uh, there had been very little studies, actually only one study done with this protein, and so nothing was actually known. The reason for focusing on these genes of unknown function was hoping that we would, by characterizing them, find at least new biology as it relates to fat metabolism. Um, you know, whether they develop into targets or not, is a matter of luck and probably how important they are. PCSK9 worked out. This one probably will not. However, it does, we think, have an important role in the biology of fatty liver disease. 
Um, and so nothing was known, so we cloned the full-length cDNA, looked at its regulation initially to establish hopefully some idea of where it fell into this particular pathways, and so we studied these animals under fasted and refed conditions. When you fast an animal, of course, fat synthesis rates are very low. SRBP1 levels go down, they essentially disappear. You feed them a high carbohydrate diet, insulin and glucose go up, you stimulate fat synthesis, and SRBP1 level go up. We think that transcription factor largely drives this process. We looked at the regulation of this MIG-12 protein in the fasted state, it went down. This is protein blot, mRNA levels, and in the refed state, it had the same overshoot that we see with SRBP1, not necessarily two, so it suggested it was more likely involved in fat synthesis, and that was consistent with our data from other fatty liver models. And, <coughs> and then we overexpressed this protein in livers of mice using an adenovirus. Simply measured fat synthesis rates um, in liver triglycerides and found that indeed overexpressing this protein did increase fat synthesis about twofold, and it resulted in a two to threefold increase in fat accumulation within the liver. So then the question was how did it do this? Um, so we looked at the uh, the uh, usual suspects, um, looked at all of the enzymes involved in making a fatty acid um, from citrate to acetyl-CoA all the way down to oleic acid. Uh, so we checked the mRNA levels for these genes, they were completely unchanged, um, so that was not helpful. Uh, we looked at the protein levels uh, for the, the enzymes that we had antibodies to, and they also were completely unchanged in livers that overexpressed MIG-12, um, and again this is the MIG-12 blot. So those, those data were, were not helpful, and it appeared that overexpressing this protein did not actually change the expression of any of these enzymes. So we then looked to determine whether this protein might interact with others. And again, using an overexpression system where we had a tag on the end of MIG-12, we expressed it in livers, pulled the MIG-12 down, and looked for associated proteins that co-immunoprecipitated with MIG-12. A number of them were differentially regulated, uh, but the one, again, that caught our eye was acetyl-CoA carboxylase at the top, which is the first committed <coughs> step in fat synthesis. Um, as you know, it, it uh, makes malonyl-CoA from, uh, from acetyl-CoA. And this repeatedly um, came down, and we confirmed it in non-overexpression systems that these two proteins um, actually interacted. Uh, so the next thing was to try to figure out how it changed or how, it, how this interaction might be important and why it might be important. And so... Uh, we made recombinant MIG-12 protein, and we had recombinant ACC protein at this time. We obtained it from BMS, a generous gift. And then we could simply add these in a test tube using an old, um, uh, an old uh, assay developed by Dan Lane in the early mid-60s. Um, you can measure ACC activity very simply. Um, I'm not going to go through the details of that, but um, it's an established assay. And what we found... Uh, was that the addition of MIG-12 to ACC protein in a test tube, at least, markedly increased this activity. It was previously known that ACC was regulated um, by citrate, uh, and that had been demonstrated very early on as well. The higher the citrate, the more activation of ACC. Um, it's also regulated at the mRNA level. It's also regulated by phosphorylation. Um, but we did check its activity as a function of citrate. And indeed, citrate alone does induce ACC activity. Um, that's been shown again by multiple people. There's two isoforms of ACC. ACC1, we think, is in the cytosol, more important in making fatty acids. ACC2, 
um, is thought to exist more at the mitochondrial membrane and may be more involved in making malonyl-CoA that regulates fat oxidation. These two enzymes do behave differently um, in response to citrate, and they certainly behave differently in response to MIG-12 for reasons we still don't understand. Um, however, uh, when we add MIG-12 to ACC1 protein, it induces activity completely independent of the citrate concentration. Um, however, ACC2 always requires some citrate to be present um, for it to induce activity. What's shaded in blue is what's thought to be the normal cellular concentration of citrate. Um, so um, anything outside of that may or may not be physiologic. Um, but so you can see that most of the activity and enhancement of activity occurs with what's thought to be within the normal range of the citrate concentration within the cell. And what's the molar ratio of MIG-12 to ACC in that axis? Um, Roughly at the moment? I also don't, I honestly don't remember. Okay. <laughs> but here we've done a concentration curve, which kind of will answer your question. Um, and, uh, and so the question then became how and why did it activate activity? And as I said, mRNA levels are do change for ACC. I showed you that didn't al wasn't altered by this protein. I'm not going to show you, but we did measure a phosphorylated state of ACC, and that did not change. ACC had also been reported to be regulated by this phenomenon of polymerization. Again, this has been known for 20 or 30 years. And so that was the third possibility. So we sought to determine whether MIG-12 might actually alter this particular property of ACC. And so this is a blue native gel, so the proteins are not denatured. Um, allows the proteins to still interact. Um, on the bottom is the activity assay. We've Recombinant ACC, again, in a test tube, recombinant ACC2 in the presence of citrate. This is in the absence of citrate. BSA is a control. ACC exists as a dimer, so this is a Western blot, or, or I mean, it's a blue native gel of the ACC2. And you can see that when we add MIG-12, even in the absence of citrate, you see a shift in the size. So this, the size of MIG-12 becomes larger and, um, and uh, as a function of the concentration of MIG-12. So it doesn't actually require very much MIG-12 to induce this. Um, ACC2 behaves a little bit differently, again, uh, the dimer. Um, it does require citrate to, for MIG-12 to induce the formation of these larger sized ACC molecules. And you can see by EM, if we just take these, look at the protein under electron microscopy, you can see the formation of these long polymers. And so this is ACC1 and ACC2. As a matter of fact, the length of these particular polymers would be much longer than what would actually even get in those gels that I showed. So it does appear that this protein affects ACC activity by directly interacting. To the best of our ability, it looks like this is a one-to-one -one or one-to-two ratio. It's a little bit hard because both exist as dimers. And, um, and, and, but nevertheless, it does appear <laughs> that it is a structural component that facilitates uh, polymerization of ACC, and as a result, it enhances its activity. Um, and so it doesn't seem to have any type of catalytic activity. It actually incorporates into the polymer and facilitates ACC polymerization. Have you looked at acetylation of ACC? Have we looked at acetylation of ACC? No, we have not. Should we? Mm -hmm. yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> it's known to be acetylated, among other things, by sirtuins. Yep. And how that affects Concentrations, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that, that's a good. Uh, we I will. Think there are so, yeah. to the acetylated form, yeah.
what we're starting to do, what we haven't done so much is, is that obviously this seems to involve in the formation of polymers, but we think it could also be involved in depolymerization where also this type of regulation could be important. Uh, it's highly phosphorylated actually, that's shown here. There's two bands of MiG-12. I'm not going to talk about this much today, but there's eight phosphorylation sites. ACAR activates its phosphorylation, and maybe its phosphorylated states actually <coughs> participates in the depolymerization of ACC, which is what we're currently testing. So um, <coughs> everything I've shown you has been largely in a test tube. We've also knocked it down. Um, this is in cultured primary hepatocytes. Hopefully we would find the opposite effect, right, which would be reduced fat synthesis. So we knocked down MiG-12. There's less polymerization. And fat synthesis, in this case, is measured by acetate incorporation into newly formed fatty acids that was ultimately reduced. Um, and so um, that's where I'm going to end this story today. For those of you who are at Rockefeller know it gets much more complicated and uh, probably not worth going into anyway. Um, but this part is, is pretty well established now. We think that this protein, at least for the particular function of this MiG-12 protein, it does modulate fat synthesis in a way that contributes um, to the development of fatty liver. Is it the major contributor? No, it's a, you know, it's a contributor. It helps facilitate the activity of ACC, uh, which then uh, overall contributes to activated uh, or to increase fat synthesis and fatty liver. Just Jay, right yeah. before you leave that, yeah. can you just say something about AMD kinase? So we know AMD kinase phosphorylates ACC. You told us it that does. phosphorylates MIG-12. Correct. Um, and so how does that integrate? So that's what we're currently studying. So um, when AMPK uh, phosphorylates ACC, it becomes inactive, and uh, we don't. What we don't know is what. And so and when we give ACAR AMPK activators, we see a shift. We lose this bottom band of MiG-12. It completely becomes phosphorylated. That's where we stand with that information. Um, so. One idea might be that the phosphorylated form of MiG-12 is not consistent with this polymer, and somehow that facilitates the polymer falling apart. And that's what we're trying to test now. Um, but I have no zero data to support that as a pure hypothesis. Um, but that would make some sense, potentially. We don't see, however, the change in this phosphorylated state with insulin. So if we give high doses of insulin or in the refed state, we don't see the formation only of the lower band, for instance. So it, but it could just be one or two phosphorylation sites that are key um, for facilitating the depolymerization. So <clears throat> moving on to um, more global regulators of fat synthesis. Again, the transcription factor, SRABP1, activates all of these fatty acid biosynthetic enzymes. And again, the obvious thing would be that if we could block this particular transcription factor, one would hope um, that if this is truly important, that uh, fat accumulation in the liver would um, at least get, uh, be significantly reduced or gone if we were deleted the activity of this transcription factor. And these animals were made a number of years ago where we knocked out SRBP1. This was done, of course, with Brown and Goldstein. Um, the one C isoform is the one that's primarily in, in liver, or in, in most tissues, actually. And so the one C isoform was knocked out. The animals are normal, born in normal ratios. They just lack almost all of SRBP1. And um, as a result, they have lower expression of all these enzymes involved in fat synthesis. That's not a surprise. Um, they're reduced by about 50%, um, so it doesn't go to zero. Again, these are transcriptional activators, so they don't necessarily have to be that important in basal levels of transcription. And so then again, uh, these animals were bred to a diabetic model with fatty liver, in this case, OBOB. Uh, they've been tested other ways as well with high fat feeding, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so the two bars to focus on are the blue and the orange. Uh, blue is OBOB animals that have the fatty liver. The orange are the animal, the OBOB animals that actually lack the 1C transcription factor. And these results were a little disappointing um, because it didn't cure fatty liver. Removing SRBP1C did reduce the expression of these enzymes involved in fat synthesis, uh, but they didn't return to normal. Uh, so the gray bar is shown as actually normal mice. And so you can see there's still significant <coughs> elevation in these particular enzymes. And there's a lot of potential explanations for that. Um, and we went on and measured fat synthesis, again, using treated water. And indeed, it was reduced by deleting this transcription factor, but it didn't return to normal. And fat, uh, the triglyceride accumulation, again, follows fat synthesis in rodents. These two track very nicely, actually. Generally, in almost all of our studies, rates of fat synthesis track very nicely with fat accumulation within the liver. And so about the same reduction was obtained. But again, it wasn't normalized. As I pointed out, so you can see it's significantly reduced in the OVOB animals. But this is 50 milligrams per gram, um, which still appears fatty compared to wild-type mice. But remember back to one of my earlier slides, this is what we consider normal still in humans. Um, so. Uh, it may or may not be uh, ultimately in, in either species. So um, there are a lot of explanations for why we got those results. One is other transcription factors are important. A second one was that we needed actually to get rid of all SRBPs in order to accomplish the goal, which was to normalize liver fat. Why would that be? Well, it's, they're not perfect. So one C, yes, it primarily activates fat synthesis, but if it's high enough, it can affect cholesterol synthesis and vice versa. So if 1C is gone, SRBP2 potentially could cross over and actually be involved in activation of fat synthesis. And there's a third isoform that I'm not talking about that also could play a role. So in thinking about this down the road, whether there would be any utility at all in using this pathway therapeutically, we thought we needed to further define um, whether blocking the entire pathway would be a benefit or not. Blocking the entire pathway is actually significantly easier than thinking about blocking only one of the transcription factors. And so if this worked, um, it would be you know, something to move forward with, at least and at least allow companies to think about this pathway as a potential target. We hadn't, I hadn't pushed this at all because before the discovery of PCSK9 because we thought that blocking this entire pathway would be detrimental for the LD receptor because this transcription factor activates the LD receptor, SRBP2. So we thought by blocking the entire pathway, including SRBP2, LDL receptor levels would go down, plasma lipid levels would go up, and no matter what happened in the liver, that would be a bad thing. Uh, but once PCSK9 was discovered, then it became more complicated. So this pathway has been worked out by Brown and Goldstein, and I don't have time to go through the details, um, but <laughs> to point out, except this one protein, SCAP, is a sterile sensing protein in the ER. It's required to stabilize SRBP. It's required to move it to the Golgi where it's activated by two proteases to release the act transcriptionally active form of the protein. And there's another retention protein involved in this process as well. Again, they've worked this out over the last 20 years or so. The nice thing is that it, it being so complicated, it actually provides multiple opportunities to intervene. Uh, this is a zinc metalloprotease. This is a serine protease, the eighth member of the PCSK9 family, actually, which is why we originally focused on PCSK9. Um, SCAP and NSIG are also potential targets. And of these, actually, the one that's probably makes the most sense is actually SCAP, because you could think about making cholesterol memetics that behave like cholesterol, which would hold SRBPs in the ER and prevent them from ever being activated. And um, 
inhibiting the proteases potentially could have effects on other proteins that use these proteases. So the question is, would deleting SCAT be beneficial in these various parameters? And so um, even though these proteins have been known for quite a while, we've actually only recently uh, pursued these studies. And again, it was largely because didn't have a lot of faith that this pathway was a good target um, until the discovery of PCS came out. And so we did, in the past, again, with Brown and Gilsey, we've made scat knockout mice, um, Goshing, Liang, and these are liver-specific knockouts. The global knockout is lethal. Um, and so these are deleted scat only in liver, so these are western blots of liver protein, uh, wild-type mice, mice that lack scat, OBOB animals, and then OBOB animals that lack scat. And you can see when scat is gone, SRBP1 levels are very low, and SRBP2 levels are very low, so the entire pathway has been knocked down. And so then we looked to see what happened to fat synthesis, and as expected, um, fat synthesis was reduced. Well, it wasn't necessarily so expected. It wasn't just reduced, but actually it was completely returned to normal, at least the expression of the enzymes. So unlike when we deleted only the one C isoform, getting rid of all of them actually completely corrected the expression of these enzymes to levels that actually <coughs> at or below the basal wild-type levels. And again, these are just all of the enzymes required to make a fatty acid. And then we looked at and measured liver triglyceride as well as fat synthesis rates. And again, much like what we found with the mRNA levels, these correlated very nicely. OBOB animals, again, have high rates of mm -hmm. fat synthesis. Deleting all of the SRBP isoforms actually reduced fat synthesis to a level below that in wild-type animals. And liver triglycerides, again, returned to normal. And so it does appear that deleting this entire pathway is sufficient, at least in a rodent, um, to alleviate fatty liver completely um, in insulin-resistant states. The next question was, would this be a good or bad thing for diabetes and glucose metabolism? And you know, the hope going into this study by a lot of people was that we were going to also cure diabetes because there's a lot of literature suggesting that fat accumulation in the liver can drive insulin resistance in and of itself. There's a, certainly a, a large group of individuals that think that fat is the causal, um, causes insulin resistance. And then there's another group that think it might just be a result of, uh, which I tend to fall into. But um, nevertheless, um, the experiments needed to be done. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we did not cure diabetes um, by normalizing fat in the liver. Um, I was actually concerned we were going to make it worse um, because, again, the carbons have to be accounted for. And so if you're not going to convert carbohydrate into a fat molecule or triglycerides, you've got to do something with them. And so they either have to be burned or they have to be shipped out of the liver. And uh, so I thought that there was a potential that we might make hyperglycemia worse. turns out nothing different happened. So we had no effect overall on glucose tolerance, insulin tolerance. We've done CLAMP studies now as well, at least in the rodents. We have not affected overall glucose homeostasis in these animals by simply by normalizing fat in the liver. So again, suggesting that at least in this model, fat is a consequence, not a cause. Yes? Did you see any effect at the level of the liver health? So, yeah. um, so <clears throat> for those of you who are aficionados of all of this stuff, um, <laughs> no, we didn't find much at the liver. Um, so, uh, you know, we looked at all the usual suspects, and I won't bore everyone with all the details of this, but no, we did not change anything that we measure, can measure, um, as a signal of insulin signaling, and the liver was unchanged. Um, at some point, we might think we would find something, but whatever it was, it did not have an impact on glucose metabolism. So, 
that part's all good. And so it suggests that, you know, down the road, blocking SRBPs through the, probably through SCAP, which is the easiest of the targets, um, might be beneficial for treating fatty liver, but that's obviously only one component and getting an indication of through the FDA fatty liver is next to impossible right now. So one would like to have alternatives, uh, surrogate markers that you could use. But certainly you'd also want to know that what you're going to do in the liver isn't going to have a negative impact on other parameters associated um, with lipid metabolism. And the one we worry about the most is plasma cholesterol levels, LDL in particular, by blocking this pathway. And again, the reason being that when you get rid of all SRVPs, you're losing the transcriptional activator of the LDL receptor. Um, and so if that falls, LDL we know goes up, uh, the LDL receptor goes down. So <laughs> to study lipid plasma lipid protein, uh, lipoprotein metabolism, as you all know, there's unfortunately no good animal model. Um, no animal model represents a human, unfortunately. Um, and it doesn't matter, monkeys, you still have to feed them a diet. Um, none of the animal models faithfully recapitulate what happens. The one we use is a hamster. It has some benefits, certainly over a mouse. Um, and so we turned to a hamster to try to at least to initially address this potential uh, problem. And again, this is shown more schematically here, why we were so worried about this. Um, by blocking SRABP2, you know, when you give a statin to treat hypercholesterolemia, you block HMG reductase, you block cholesterol synthesis, at least temporarily. That activates this transcription factor, which activates the LD receptor. You make more LD receptor protein, plasma LDL drops. And that's why we never pursued this pathway. But then when PCSK9 was discovered, <laughs> it opened up uh, at least the possibility that deleting SRBP2 could be neutral. Because it turns out this transcription factor also activates PCSK9, a protein that binds to the LD receptor protein and ultimately degrades it. So if you have no PCSK9, your plasma LDL is less than 20. So it's a potent regulator of plasma LDL. And why the same transcription factor would make a protein, make another protein that ultimately degrades, we don't know. Uh, we can talk about that if you like, but this pathway does exist. Uh, and so the, it's possible the two could cancel each other out um, by deleting this particular transcription factor. And again, we won't actually know until we get to humans, uh, but hamsters are our only small animal model um, that we think has some of advantages over mice. Um, these are the particular advantages. They at least make all ApoB100 in their liver, unlike a mouse, which makes B48 as well. They have some VLDL and LDL cholesterol, particularly if you give them a diet, as I'll show you. They also have cholesterol ester transfer protein, which mice do not. Um, and they can develop insulin resistance and hyperlipidemia, particularly with sucrose or fructose diet. It doesn't really matter. Um, we used a, a, a carbohydrate diet to further accentuate first fatty liver as well as the lipid abnormalities. Um, and obviously we can't manipulate genes in hamsters, so we had to use siRNA. We collaborated with a company called Almylum that puts the siRNA into liposomes. We can inject the liposomes into the animals and knock down the genes. So it's not a complete knockout. Um, and this is the siRNA against SCAP. This is the mismatch. Uh, you can see we do a fairly good job of being able to knock down SCAP in the liver. Again, the liposomes actually only go to the liver in this particular formulation. And we measure toxicity and all of that. It was okay. Um, they've actually gone to humans now with this formulation, not with SCAP, but with PCSK9. <coughs> phase one trials with that, which I talked about yesterday. So when we knock down SCAP, you can see the reduction in SRBP1 and 2 is not quite as great um, as what we saw with the complete knockout. 
um, but nevertheless it is reduced. And then we measured the enzymes in fat synthesis, cholesterol synthesis, they go down when we knock down scab, and the mismatch control was unaffected. <laughs> the question was plasma lipids, and so when we feed the animals a, a carbohydrate diet, they actually develop a lot of VLDL in particular. Their triglycerides go up to about 600, and by knocking down all SRBPs, we can return that level not quite to normal, but almost. Uh, uh, a level that actually statistically isn't significant, but still there's a trend to be a little bit higher than what we find in a wild-type hamster that's on a normal chow diet. Uh, but nevertheless, there was a significant reduction, and again, we were able to correct liver triglyceride concentrations in these hamsters by blocking SRVPs and lipogenesis. Here is the most worrisome experiment, which is what's going to happen to the elder receptor. And the LD receptor mRNA, as we predicted, goes down significantly. Um, but fortunately, the PCSK9 mRNA level also goes down, as we would have predicted. It goes down a lot more, um, as it turns out. And as a result, when we look at LD receptor protein in the liver, um, at least in this animal model, it was completely unchanged. So the two were awash, um, and we didn't have a negative impact on the expression of the LD receptor as a result of deleting this pathway. And as a result of that, uh, plasma lipoprotein profiles were improved. These are the triglycerides that were largely normalized by deleting SCAP. Um, this is cholesterol levels. LDL was completely unchanged um, by the deletion of SCAP. So at least in this animal model, it holds some promise, I think, in thinking about this as a potential target. The reason their plasma lipids go down there, they have less triglyceride secretion uh, from the liver. So <clears throat> we hope and think that this is at least worth thinking about now, um, and certainly companies I think now are starting to think about this as a potential target. Again, getting something actually to market is going to be very hard in fatty liver disease because it requires serial biopsies at this time. I think it won't happen until we develop a non-invasive way to measure disease progression. Um, <coughs> once that happens, um, there will be a lot of potential pathways to think about as far as to block fat accumulation in the liver, and maybe this will be one of them. So I will stop now and acknowledge the people I've worked with in this project, uh, particularly Al Nylum, who provided the SIRNA. So thank you for your attention. I'd be happy to take any other questions. Thank you very much, Jay. Questions from the audience. Tony. Look to see if um, scap knockdown or knockout in uh, mouse models of hepatocytosis that are not insulin resistant but which are altered. Yes, um, and no. They, as far as when it comes to glucose metabolism. No, no, no. in terms of uh, liver steatosis, so in other words, in one of these. Oh, high fat feeding and so forth? No, in non-insulin resistant models. Oh, so sure. So liver fat still goes down, yeah. yes. So. Yes, it still is lower than the wild type. So there is some basal contribution of lipogenesis and SRVP stimulation to basal fat levels as well. Is that your question? Yeah, it so, is. Yeah. Yeah, so, but it's not, I mean, it's less than 50% low. I think it's, the exact numbers are like 12 to 7 or something like that, milligrams per gram. When you just delete it on a chow diet. Shaker? Just yes, to follow up on your last comment yeah. about uh, the difficulty with biopsies and so on. Right. You showed these data earlier that the AMT mm -hmm. uh, you know, did very poorly mm -hmm. in relation to the biopsy. But then you showed that the biopsy data themselves Correct. So I was wondering if you had looked at how the AOP does compared to repeat biopsies that maybe yeah. you're more confident that uh, CA doses 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we haven't. Others have tried to do that. But again, the numbers are very small, and it's really hard to control for the sampling error, which we know exists. That has been studied in detail as well. And so, but in general, if you have an abnormal ALT and you have abnormal liver biopsies, there is some correlation between lowering of ALT and improvement in liver biopsy. But again, it's far from perfect. And it's not something that I don't think anybody would be confident in using um, to follow disease long term. Um, certainly we don't. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, again, I, the, we're really hampered by the fact that we rely on liver biopsies at this point. And until we can get past that, you know, hopefully we'll have an NMR technique or something down the road where we can measure inflammation and fibrosis non-invasively. And at that point, I think that we'll have a lot of opportunities um, to intervene in this condition. So being able to measure a fibrosis answers one question. That's a good question. So the question is, what, are there other markers, non-invasive markers, that one could identify to <coughs> identify those people? We can't treat a third of the population, that's for sure, nor can we biopsy them. So what you would like to do is identify those people who are at risk to progress or who those already have the more severe histology to intervene, assuming that once they get to that point, it's actually reversible, um, which we don't actually necessarily know. The best data probably comes from bariatric surgery literature where they, a lot of people have done biopsies, obviously, before and after. A lot of it shows, certainly all, they all show improvement in steatosis. Most have shown some improvement in histology. Some have shown not so much improvement in the long term in the progression. Um, there are a lot of la uh, lab tests out there that people have tried to put together various complicated formulas um, to identify those people who are at risk, um, who have, may have more severe histology on biopsy. Um, there's some utility in those, um, but they're not perfect and, again, aren't widely used, at, certainly not at our institution yet. Um, one could also think about, you know, developing, I mean, once we learn more about specific disease susceptibility, uh, I mean uh, genetic susceptibility like the PNPLA3, you could think about genotyping people in the future to identify those people who are at greater risk. And PNPLA3 is our only candidate so far, and that one is close, but I don't think quite there. Because um, the other reason is you'd like to have intervention that you know works before you go to the trouble of identifying these individuals. And currently, all we have is weight loss, and you know that works great in some hands. Um, but for the majority of us, um, we don't have much success in getting people to lose weight. And so, until something else becomes available, it's the same argument we had with Hep C. How hard do you look uh, when you had nothing to treat um, with the patients with, and then interferon and etc. came along. Um, so. We're kind of in the same situation. Certainly people are looking every day for additional biomarkers that may indicate those potential things, but I think we're still not quite there. If you look, if you survey the SRDP1C targets, right. do you find secreted proteins that you can measure that, or it's all, you know, glycogen? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we haven't, um, you know, finding proteins in plasma is a challenge. Um, and but among so, the mRNA targets, any that could not yet, no. I mean, certainly PCSK9 is secreted, um, and, but that one doesn't correlate with that either, um, because it's primarily a BP2. Yeah. Steve had a question and then Nick. Yeah. Why, why doesn't secretion take care of the fat accumulation? Why doesn't it 
That's a great question. Why does yeah? Why doesn't the system just start regulate to the point that it alleviates? And I don't know the answer to that. I assume that the APOB or some other process in the assembly assembly process is limiting. Um, but probably also there may not be a need. I mean, the liver doesn't have a brain of its own, I guess, to know that this might be harmful. And so, it, um, and so, but you're right. Why don't the other pathways compensate and make up for this difference? And I don't know. Well, that's a very complicated. That's a very complicated literature database. But I think it certainly increases triglyceride secretion. That's for sure. ApoB, you can find any answer you want. In our hands, in our hands, ApoB doesn't change very much, but the triglyceride does change a lot. So the particles become much larger. And there's some data in humans more recently from Sam Klein that suggests that may be true of fatty liver disease as well. But you can find other answers to that question as well. But I don't know what is rate limiting in that particular process. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm particularly interested about the difference between knocking out SRE2C versus GAP right. in the OVOB. So do the OVOB mice have high SRE2C2 that could explain that difference? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I didn't show that. Um, high is a relative term. Um, they do have higher levels of SRVP2 than what they should based on their cholesterol concentration in their liver. Because okay. they accumulate cholesterol in their liver as well. Significantly, actually, up to 5 milligrams per gram, normally being less than 0.2. Normally, SRVP2 levels would be zero under that condition. However, if you compare them to a wild-type animal, it's actually completely unchanged. Mm -hmm. So relatively, yes, there is more SRVP1. 1A or 2, but 1A is unchanged, so that remains the same. But there is more than what one would predict. Um, Do you think that Scott might have any other proteins that binds other than these? Um, it's possible, but it hasn't been. You know, that's an open-ended question uh, that people have looked. Um, but uh, obviously, that's how they found insig as well as an interacting protein. But thus far, none of them. Right? So you looked at the. You've shown the data on the fractional contribution of glycogenesis to uh, liver fat in Mixed, yeah. Um, there is a few patients with type, frank type 2 diabetes that have been studied, but it might depend upon the state you're studying them as well, how high their actual insulin levels are. In just plain insulin resistance, yes, um, that has, uh, that's been done. I'm not sure it's been published yet, but we've looked at that. And again, using the same techniques, it does appear that lipogenesis has increased. Um, so fractionally, but in frank diabetics, uh, it's a little more than that. Um, it's about what Elizabeth described uh, initially um, in those patients. But again, it's more effective during the fasted state. So yeah. normally fasting yeah. comes down, and what happens, at least appears in the humans, is they just never really come down, so it's maintained. So it depends on where you look in the fasted fast cycle that you, you measure the bigger differences, obviously. Um, but again, you know, in the humans, this may or may not be as important. Um, you know, Lipogenesis. Certainly in a rodent, that's very clear. But I think the jury is still out since the majority of fat in a human does come from the periphery. Um, and, you know, in the beginning I thought it was very important because it should shut off fat oxidation. So if you activate fat synthesis, oxidation should be reduced through the Malinokoi hypothesis or data shown by, Dan, or, uh, by uh, Dr. Gary and Foster. However, 
And, and so I thought that this was very important in humans, even if it was small. But more recent data from Browning and Burgess suggest that actually fat oxidation in the livers of, these animals, or in the, of humans has increased. And so um, maybe, you know, again, I wasn't right. And so I think the, um, the jury's out on how important this is going to be in humans. I think the data in rodents is pretty solid, but we'll have to see. So, Thank you. Thanks.